The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Please remain standing for the sermon text, which is this morning found in Psalm 82 as well as in uh, what Charlene read from us from Isaiah 40 and Colossians 2 and John 10, which we haven't read yet, but we'll get to. Hear the word of the Lord. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, uh, you are God's sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children uh, can head out to Children's Church. And if you would like to find Psalm 82, that would be helpful. Let me pray. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength my Redeemer. Well, if you were here last week or maybe listened to the sermon, if you were gone, um, you might remember that I preached on the covenantal faithfulness of God. And now uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, the fullness of God. And then next week, we're going to talk about the God who forgives. And then we're going to wrap up the first part of this series as we talk about God's favor. So faithfulness, fullness, forgiveness, favor. And you might wonder, why am I working us through uh, a course on the doctrine of God when this sermon series is to be about continuous spiritual renewal? Well, the reason is this. I believe, and and, and I think this is easily proven, uh, that the church has drifted Uh, from her theological roots and theological formation in favor of the gods of relevance. That's what I said uh, in week one. We either land uh, with the god of the kind of happy meal relevance, kind of the happy clappy crowd, uh, or we land with the god of relevance as it's expressed in traditions that uh, may make us comfortable, but actually haven't changed our lives, done much with us. My strategy, then, is to combat the false gods of the church, including ours, by retrieving apostolic teaching, applying uh, apostolic teaching so that it reproves us. And you remember the word reprove means correction, so we need to be corrected. And then, of course, to encourage us encourage us to remain in the truth 
that we have retrieved. I do believe that as we do these things, the Spirit will work then to renew us uh, continuously. So my first point uh, this morning is a point of retrieval. Now I want you to think for just a moment about Niagara Falls. Uh, we're going to have to put a picture up there of one of the falls. How many of you been and actually seen Niagara Falls? I mean, you've actually physically, almost everybody in the room. That's very impressive. Nice. Um, if you haven't been, um, this is kind of what it sort of looks like. Uh, there you go. Uh, it is uh, the second largest uh, waterfall in the world. And it has uh, an estimated flow rate of over 700,000 gallons of water per second. Per second. And, and it's estimated that um, it could harness enough energy to turn the lights on in over, well, almost uh, 4 million homes. And we don't need to delve into all the particulars except to say, let's just agree, that's a whole lot of water and that's a whole lot of power. Well, one way um, the Bible reveals the nature of God is in his fullness through power. That's what Charlene read for us from Isaiah 40. The power of God. It is awesome. It is impressive. It is wonderful. But what I didn't have Charlene read from us from Isaiah 40. Did I say Psalm 40 earlier? I meant Isaiah 40. From Isaiah 40 was the first couple verses of Isaiah 40 that introduced this God of such power uh, as the God of comfort. Listen to the words. I'll read them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now I want you to think back uh, to last week in my illustration of my favorite freshwater spring in Florida, Wakaiva Spring. And we're going to put a picture of it up on the screen for you. Uh, Wakaiva Spring is very powerful as well, but just in an entirely different way. Now when we think about the fullness of God, we have to keep this tension in mind. Because the loss of the tension between the God of power and the God of all comfort, the Niagara Falls and the Wakaiba Springs, the loss of that tension has led to all kinds of error and idolatry in the church. On one hand, the church can be a place of emotional detachment. People who have been taught right doctrine find no comfort in it. It's never reached their heart. They're not, they're not ministered by the doctrine, the right doctrine even, that they have been taught. But on the other hand, some churches want to be so relevant that there's actually no worship of God, but simply kind of a Tower of Babel experience filled with human ingenuity and human ability, but not the fullness of God. So when we talk about the fullness of God as what we're going to do in this whole sermon, we have to keep in mind both the power and the comfort of the living God. And we'll put both pictures up on the screen there at the same time. They come together, and this is just for illustrative purposes, they come together in great power, and then they come together in another way that's very powerful but brings great comfort. 
Now, now you might be asking if you're asking questions, well, what does Psalm 82 have to do with any of this? Well, what we get from Psalm 82 is what uh, Bible commentator Michael Wilcox calls a knotty problem. Knotty, K-N-O-T-T-Y problem. Can we put that up on the screen real quick? Because that kind of problem. Because earlier, I I, I warned about, I'm not saying naughty problem. It's not a naughty problem. It's a naughty problem problem all right i was wanted to be clear we'll go back to the other much more beautiful pictures and i want to i love naughty problems and you should too and here's why they force us to move from a surface observation down into the particulars of a situation and if we are going to find both the awe of worship with god as well as the comfort and consolation of the fullness of the spirit of God poured out, we have to descend into what uh, St. Saint, Saint Ignatius of Loyola called the particulars. The particulars. You know, if you got a knotty yarn ball or whatever, you got to get down in it. You can't see it from the distance and get it apart. Now, If someone in this room happens to be a serious student of of Hebrew poetry, Psalm 82 is a fantastic place because it has a naughty problem. Who are the gods, little g, in verse 1, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the little g gods, he holds judgment. And again, in verse number 6, I said you are little g gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Who are they? Commentator Wilcock, and he's not alone in his opinion, writes this about Psalm 82. The inclusion of God, giving judgment among the gods, and being called to judge the earth frames some of the strangest and most hotly debated lines in the Psalter. Now, you might have to be a little bit of a geek to like appreciate that, but that's okay. All right, that's okay. Then he writes this. We did not leave the naughty problems of the Psalms behind when we moved from Psalm 81 to 82. And as I said, I love naughty problems. And I want you to as well. Now, there is disagreement about who the gods are, little g, in this psalm. But there's no disagreement that in various places in the Bible, especially in the wisdom books, God is depicted as presiding over a council. You get that sense from uh, Job, right? As Satan comes before God, it's mentioned in other places in the Psalms as well. But is this Psalm telling us that God, Elohim, the one true living God, is judging the little g God's the heathen gods of the pagan nations, or the gods, rulers, and authorities, as Paul calls them. Wilcock says no to both. It's neither. And I tend to agree with him, and here's why. Because he, uh, uh, not because I'm a Hebrew scholar, because I'm not, right? Uh, You all have figured that out. Um, But he leans into theologian D.A. Carson, who 
leans into something that Jesus said. You see, you got to descend into the particulars to unravel the knot. Wilcox says, oh, this is what Carson says, and I like it because this is what Jesus said. Go to John 10. Now, you'll need to, you'll need to let your fingers do the walking today, as we used to say uh, in your Bibles. John chapter number 10. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus alludes to Psalm 82. When Jesus says, Is it not written in your law? John 10, verse 34, Jesus answered, he's answering his critics, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Right? That's, that's what Psalm 82 said. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, now Jesus makes an allusion to Psalm 82 in defense of an accusation that arises in John 9 and John 10 that Jesus has committed blasphemy. In fact, they were ready to, to stone him. They had picked up stones and were ready to hurl them at him uh, because it. And what is the defense that Jesus gives? Your law. That's what he calls it. Exhibit one brings it forward. Your law. Here, Jesus refers to the Jewish understanding that the law was not to be contained to the Torah only, the law given to Moses, but that the law also includes the ethical application that is presented in the Psalms and in the prophets. In effect, Jesus is saying that his claim to deity rests at least in part on the ethical application of the law. And Jesus backs this up then as he points them to the work that he is doing. Verse number 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now this whole confrontation that Jesus is facing begins in chapter 9. When Jesus is asked a question about a man who was born blind, did his parents sin or did he sin? And Jesus said, neither. It is here that we descend into the dreadful particulars of a situation for which Jesus feels both empathy for a man born blind as well as then shows mercy to the man by healing him. Niagara, the power of God. Wakaiva, the comfort and consolation of God come together on behalf of a man born blind. And when Jesus defends his deity, referring back to Psalm 82, he can do so with complete integrity because he did for the man what Psalm 82 asked of him. And in doing so, then he implies judgment, right? Upon the ones who are falsely accusing him. So it's here in John 10 that the knotty problem of Psalm 82 begins to unravel. And when the Apostle Paul then explains the deity of Jesus, he writes that in Jesus we have the fullness of God in bodily form. 
in some way, that, in a way that we cannot fully grasp, the fullness of God was within the physical body of Jesus, one with God. Do you want to peer over the edge of a theological Niagara Falls? Do you like to hear the roar of the water and be at awe by what you see? You like that? Well, I'm going to give you a theological Niagara Falls right here. It's found in the Belgic Confession of 1561, Article 19, which, by the way, is titled, and we're really geeking out this morning, which, by the way, is titled, The Union and Distinction of the Two Natures in the Person of Christ. Read it with me. Jesus is inseparably united and connected with the human nature so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Yet that each nature retains its own distinct properties. As then the divine nature hath always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. So also hath the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, and retaining all the properties of a real body. And though he hath by his resurrection given immortality to the same, nevertheless he hath not changed the reality of his human nature. For as much as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. That, my friends, is Niagara Falls, the fullness of God in bodily form. And we had better know it. We had better be in awe of it. We better exalt him for it. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But it's also Wakiva Springs. That is a place of great comfort. That is a place of great encouragement. Listen, if you grew up in a church with a lot of emphasis on doctrine, but never were shown how comforting doctrine can be, I want to encourage you to ask the Spirit of God to help you because the truth of what we just read is as much Wakiva Springs in all of its comfort as it is Niagara in all of its power. You know, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's go back to what Charlene read for us from the book of Colossians and chapter number two. Colossians and chapter number two. And we want to ask two questions as we descend into the particulars of the fruit of our union with Jesus. Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form, united now by faith, we with him, produces what? Well, it produces a kind of stability, we're told, that abounds in thanksgiving. It produces protection from philosophy and empty deceit that might otherwise take us captive. It, it produces holiness as we put off the body of the flesh for we are buried with Christ in his baptism. We are raised up with him through faith in a powerful working of God. 
What does the fruit of our union with Jesus produce? It produces transformation. It produces change. So how powerful and yet how personal is this, what Paul calls a baptismal relationship? Personal enough to forgive us of all of our trespasses. You want to descend into the particulars of your life right now? And ask, how powerful does God's forgiveness have to be to forgive you of each and every sin? Commission and omission. The spoken word, the ethical requirement. For he who is guilty in one point is guilty of all. How powerful does God have to be to forgive us of all our sins? And yet how personal does he have to be in love and mercy to care about us, to feel for us? He's powerful enough not only to cancel out all of the debts, verse 14, that stood against us with its legal demands. He did this as he nails it to the cross and then disarms the rulers and authorities. He puts them to open shame as he himself triumphs over them. That's power. That's comfort. It is here that Niagara Falls and Wakiva Springs come together in a relationship of love and faith with Jesus, who is the fullness of God in bodily form. And this matters so much because the particular issues of our lives matter. Forgiveness for sins, living the victory of Jesus, and of course applying the ethical life of Jesus in love and good works. This is why we must continue to retrieve the teaching of the apostles concerning the doctrine of God and all of what it means, but then also be corrected by it. Because the church today needs to be reproved. It needs correction. And this again is where the naughty problem of Psalm 82 helps us. You might recall what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of God. So how, how do we do better? Well, the naughty problem of Psalm 82 then is unraveled by the good news of Jesus and what Jesus accomplishes for his people. Go back to Psalm 82 and let's zero in on where is Jesus in this psalm. Now, you might, you might remember again that in the first sermon in this series, I pointed out the failure of Israel as an idolatrous nation. But here in Psalm 82, we are actually shown another kind of failure, and that is Israel's unwillingness to keep the ethical demands of the law. Jesus Again, in John 10, Jesus understands the gods of Psalm 82 to be the people of Israel. And the judgment God is giving against his people comes through a question in verse 2. He is saying to his people, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? To understand the accusation, we have to descend into the particulars. What does it look like to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Well, here's what it looks like. You don't give justice to the weak and fatherless, verse 3. 
You do not maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Verse number four, you don't rescue the weak and the needy. You don't deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Those are the particulars that Israel was failing at. Israel was not interested in. So what does Jesus point to in John 10 as he defends his deity? He points them to his works. He says to them, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe in me. But if I am doing them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. The man born blind, John 9, where this whole thing starts, is the particular, if you will, of the work of Jesus referred to in John 10. It isn't only power that Jesus is showing, right? He is showing how he is fulfilling all the demands of the law. As he fulfills the requirements of the law, we then can find our hope through faith in him. Through faith in him, we can be declared righteous. And because grace reigns through righteousness, we too are now empowered to descend into the particulars of people all around us. And as we do, we announce the good news of God's salvation. And like Jesus, we don't only do that in words, we do it in works that are born out of our desire now to keep the ethical life of Jesus in view. When we talk about the fullness of God in bodily form, we must take into account the ethical action of Jesus. And those actions were legendary. They were beyond dispute. And the reason they were undeniable is because Jesus was willing to descend into the particulars of his people. Jesus never lived at a distance. He shows the fullness of God in bodily form as he renders impartial judgment. As he cares for the weak, the fatherless, Jesus maintains the rights of the afflicted. He maintains the rights of the destitute. He rescues the weak. He takes the needy and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And as he does those things, he fulfills his faithful vocation as a faithful Israelite. He does what the people of Israel were unwilling to do by doing that jesus then is able to die as a perfect sacrifice for sin because he was sinless in every respect of what the law demanded and then through his resurrection he announces victory for his life now with credibility right steps forward from the grave and he shows himself to be victorious over death his ascension and exaltation confirm that indeed the father was pleased with his son. The church enters into the scene filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers them to do what Psalm 82 requires of them as they not only announce Jesus is Lord, but shows his lordship as they feel empathy with the needs of the people all around them, Jew and Gentile alike, bond and free right? And then with mercy, they act on those particular needs. What is the church except a body prepared 
for words and works that we are empowered to do. What are we prepared for? Just read Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. You see, just as Israel was chosen and Jesus was chosen, so we are chosen. Just as Israel and Jesus were given a vocation to fulfill, we too are given one as well. Think about the vocational language that Peter uses in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous, marvelous light. Now we live in an area with a variety of needs that must be seen in their particular form. And it will require us to descend into those things. Continuous spiritual renewal through the retrieval of apostolic truth should then shape us to see life through the lens of the life of Jesus. And immediately we will begin to feel. That's what empathy is. Empathy is, it begins with feeling the needs of others. And then we take action as we are directed by the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit to address people that are in need. These large national issues of race, abuse of women, the horror of child poverty, neglect of children all around us, addictions, general hopelessness that is all around us, they are our issues as well. And the corrective, mo the corrective measure for us at this moment may not be to come up with big solutions. Maybe that will come. But perhaps right now, right now in this room for us, could we agree that maybe at least it looks like signing up to send a card to Betty Wood? Taking the time after church to ask Bonnie Armstrong, any, any help needed on Friday with the dinner for a faithful member who is now with the Lord? Maybe it looks like going to Becca Herrick and saying, can I pray for you with moths? Wonderful ministry to moms with young children. Or going to my wife and saying, how can I help with the hallway? Or how can I help with Sunday school? What can I do? How can I pray? We may not be able right now to come up with solutions for everything. But if we don't at least start feeling for one another, how will we feel for those outside? If we are unwilling to descend into the particulars of our little congregation here, what hope do we have to descend into the particulars out there? You see, the trap of Psalm 82 is so very easy to fall into because it, it looks so overwhelming. The weak are everywhere. The fatherless are everywhere. The rights of the afflicted are not being maintained. The destitute are everywhere. The weak everywhere. The needy are everywhere. People need to be delivered from the hand of the wicked everywhere. And we check out. Because everywhere just is too big. And Ignatius was right. Descend into the particulars. Look at the need closest to you. Be willing to go into that need. 
Not just with the words, but with the, the works of the power of Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form, who has sent his spirit for sweet fellowship and engagement and poured out with love. This is why the doctrine of the fullness of God must be retrieved if the church does not live out of the fullness of God as now revealed in King Jesus who is enthroned, his spirit poured out, then honestly we will have little to offer. And most likely we will fade as many other churches have faded. But oh, if we're changed, if we're reproved, if we take serious the corrective measure by pointing us to Jesus, we will find the greater hope and the greater confidence and then I believe the great victory through his name, which takes me to my very final point, which will be very quick. And that is the challenge to remain in the teaching of the apostles. For what happens if the church doesn't take her vocation with all seriousness well psalm 82 pictures for us a world in which there is a lack of understanding and darkness and the foundations are shaking and this is exactly what happened to israel the little g gods in verse one are the ones in verse five who have no knowledge or understanding they're walking about in darkness and the foundations of the earth are shaken they are the ones then who are going to die and fall like any prince Great darkness became prevalent because Israel failed to be the light of the glory of God for the nations, including their own nation. Which is why when Jesus came, it was said of him, right, from the prophet, those who have been in darkness have now seen what? Great light. Great light. When the church does not stand up and give justice to the weak, to the fatherless, when the church does not maintain the rights of the afflicted and destitute, when the church does not rescue the needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked, the foundations begin to shake. We have to take that with all seriousness. We have seen the foundations of the church shake not only through recanting of sound doctrine, but also through the abuse of power. And so as we witness these things, and as we're drawn into the fullness of God, we have to ask then, where is our hope to be located? And I would say right here in Psalm 82, because the knotty problem has been resolved, because Jesus is found right in the center of this psalm. Hope is to be found in Jesus. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. John Calvin, in writing on the book, commenting on the book of Colossians, writes this, Now in Christ there is a perfection to which nothing can be added. Why does the church exhaust itself trying to add to the perfection of Christ? And yet they do. Maybe we do. He is our hope, and that is where our hope is to be located. But will we remain in him as our hope? 
And here it is. The apostles have cleared the pathway for us. But by God's grace, we have to firmly and fully remain in Jesus. As Calvin again writes, for those who possess Christ have God truly present and enjoy Him wholly. Have you enjoyed God this morning? I'm about 35 minutes into this sermon. I hope you've been enjoying God. For where two or three are gathered, He is in our midst. So let us endeavor. You know, I'm at it when I raise my finger. Let us endeavor. <laughs> my pastor used to pound the pulpit. I, I'm not much of a pulpit pounder, so let us endeavor. <laughs> To enjoy the one who, like Niagara, has power beyond comprehension. And yet, like Wakaiva, can bring comfort to your soul and to any who has need. Israel failed in her vocation to be God's people. But Jesus took up Israel's vocation and he fulfilled it. What is the church? But a body prepared. A body then that takes his fullness of love, shows empathy and mercy as we descend into the particulars of people's lives and needs. And as we do this, we then can pray the last phrase in Psalm 82, and we can pray it with humility and with joy and with confidence. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Amen and amen. Father, um, as we now prepare ourselves for your table, um, we have eaten a lot of food, and we need to just pause now and be quiet and let your spirit engage us and do the work that he would do. And I pray, O oh Lord, that um, we would allow that and open our hearts and minds to him. Let's be quiet before the Lord as we prepare ourselves for the table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.